We've had 100-year floods, 500-year floods almost every year. That's peculiar. That's something that, that I think people will stop and kind of turn their head and go, yeah, you're right, you know, that's not normal. Why is that happening? And that's, I think, helped us to kind of inject a little bit of the conversation about changing climate. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and this is one in a series of podcasts recorded at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference held this past February in St. Louis, Missouri. I want to encourage all of our listeners to go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and sign up to get our weekly email, which will give you a heads up about future podcast episodes and other sustainability and equity issues in the news. On our website, you can also access all of our past episodes, along with show notes and resources from today's podcast. That's infiniteearthradio.com. Our topic this week is resiliency and planning for climate change in communities that have not yet fully embraced climate change. My co-host today is Kip Scheuer from the Local Government Commission, and our guest today is John Zena, Deputy Director, Memphis and Shelby County Division of Planning and Development. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. Kip, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. So, John, I'd like to give our audience a little feel for the guests, who they are as people. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved in you know, community resiliency, how that became an important issue for you? I've worked in the planning world in Memphis for, I guess, about uh, 12, 13 years now and have sort of played a number of different roles uh, as I've progressed in my career there. Really had, I, I think, one of the most unique opportunities a few years ago to become the manager of um, one of the HUD Sustainable Communities Regional Planning Grants that was awarded to Shelby County, but looked actually region-wide. So if you're not familiar with Memphis and Shelby County, we're in the southwest corner of the state of Tennessee. We're along the Mississippi River. We've got a lot of tributaries that flow through our county and obviously into the Mississippi River. But we're also at the corner of Arkansas and Mississippi. So uh, we are a tri-state region, which, as you can imagine, there's a lot of of politics that comes with that. There's kind of butting heads that sometimes comes with that, competition from one state to the other over business or residents or um, development, et cetera. Um, So when we started this regional planning grant, our whole focus was to build a, a vision of a connected system of green space across this, the three states, four counties, 18 municipalities, with the idea that if we can agree on something, if we can get behind sort of connecting on something, it's green space. At that time, there was a lot of activity around, you know, greenways and trails, and I think the regional planning grant gave us a chance to sort of elevate it, elevate that work beyond just kind of the recreational side and thinking about multiple co-benefits of connecting green space, including transportation and community redevelopment, economic development, but also looking 
at resilience as well, being a community that is prone to flooding quite often. It was uh, a unique opportunity for us to kind of get our heads around, you know, how this opportunity to connect around green space started to also address some of our uh, seemingly really vexing issues around uh, how we're dealing with flooding. For our audience, explain what you think the word resiliency, you know, in your, in your terms, what does resiliency mean? That's a good question. I think, you know, the, I guess the textbook definition that, you know, maybe is, is what a lot of folks in the work now sort of follow around, you know, what Rockefeller sees it as, is, you know, that capacity to, to bounce back from shocks, to be able to uh, thrive in the face of the stresses that are, are often made worse in the event of shocks. Again, just uh, maybe in the same way that we approached uh, connected system of green space in the region to be more than just greenways and trails. You know, I think the evolution of resilience is pushing people to think beyond just, you know, how do you bounce back from a flood or, you know, how do you build back from a hurricane, but also as you're building back, as you're bouncing back, how are you doing that in a way that's addressing so many of the social and economic issues that that your community may face and, and, and how those social and economic issues are often sort of exposed or made worse uh, at, you know, the most vulnerable time when you do have a severe shock like a flood. I noticed you sort of talked about that as a textbook definition, and how's that definition being taken up or responded to in your communities, both across the jurisdictional boundaries and within? I'd say right now we're still neophytes at uh, putting together this this type of work. You know, obviously we've we've done I think some really good things. We've uh, Shelby County was one of the recipients of the HUD National Disaster Resilience Competition, so uh, I think that sort of proves what we're capable of in terms of you know being a leader in resilience nationwide, but. Still, I, I think that a lot of our focus is around flooding. We certainly have other risks that, uh, that we need to address, you know, whether they're extreme heat or extreme cold, being in the south, you know, deal with extreme cold too much where we are, whether it be, you know, extreme winds or uh, drought. So I think that there's a lot more for us to understand. But in terms of dealing with flooding, our approach that we sort of sketched out, not only in that regional green print plan, but then as it sort of translated and evolved into our application for the resilience competition was really around the concept of making room for the river. So back in 2011, we had a series of severe storms and floods that affected Shelby County and, and really the whole Mid-South region. But in just within Shelby County alone, we had over $2 billion dollars in damages from flooding. And we had flooding occur in all different parts of our county. So, you know, in the northern part of the county, which is very rural, in the sort of central part of the county, which is the more sort of urban area, and then the southern part of the county, which does have urban level of development, but it's uh, it's very suburban scale. So what we wanted to, to do in thinking about those sort of different development contexts is also to think about what were the sort of unique ways that we can address the concept of making room for the river in those areas based on the type of uh, effect that we had. So what we came up with was uh, essentially thinking about making room for the river in three different ways. And one way in the sort of more rural context 
diverting water. So where we have, you know, just large quantities of flood water that are coming down the channel that are spilling out of the banks into what actually is one of the, the largest uh, inland naval bases uh, in the country, uh, as well as a, a nearby sort of low to moderate income neighborhood. If we can create sort of a diversion pool for that water to fill in to be able to protect the surrounding community. In the central part of the county, like I said, the more urban area, looking at, at how we make room for the river there by sort of rising up above the water. So thinking about how we can use techniques like cut and fill and sort of create some some more gradation to the land to, to be able to bring development out of uh, flood-prone area and, and sort of be above above that area. If Also, if you know anything about Memphis and Shelby County, uh, we're very flat. So uh, the concept of... of Creating any sort of elevation is uh, a little bit, you know, it's very novel for us. Yeah. And then finally, uh, in the, in the third area, like I said, that's sort of the suburban area. One of the biggest issues we had there in, in that community that was flooded was there's development all in the floodplain. And that was something that just during that time period of the fifties and sixties and seventies, when we were putting development in that part of the, of the county, we allowed that development in the floodplain a lot more than maybe we should have. And so actually we're going now working with the property owners there to try to buy out properties from the floodplain and do some light touches there. So use some more sort of green infrastructure techniques, whether they're there in the floodplain area or upstream, so that, you know, we can use some, you know, just different green berms and native plantings and reforestation uh, to be able to protect the community there. So, and, that, and that's more just about, you know, letting the water kind of spread out into what, you know, I think would have been its natural flow of course in the first place. That's kind of how we're looking at it now, but we're doing a, a regional resilience plan to go along with those projects so that we can start to get into more of those different types of shocks and then also think more about the stresses that, that we face, not just from those additional shocks, but looking uh, more deeply at, at you know, the stresses we face and in, in the risk of flood as well. So I'd like to ask you a couple of quick questions around languaging, right, as you're working with the community. I think how we address some of these issues in different parts of the country there's different ways to talk about these issues. So I'm, I'm wondering the degree to which in the communities you're, the community you're working in, it started, you started talking about like making room for the river. Mm-hmm. Has there been a conversation about resiliency and, and do things like climate change come into the conversation or is it more just a conversation about allowing the river and being prepared for disaster? Yeah, great question. We sort of took the approach that in the community conversations that help shape our grant application, we really started with flood protection first because we felt like that was something that we knew, you know, we could walk into any community who had felt that years prior, and and that's immediately something they get. You know, we've got to think about different ways we're protecting your community from flood. The old ways aren't working anymore, you know. Clearly, we've got the evidence of that. We've got to think about different ways to do it. And then sort of the, the next thing we kind of transition to is thinking about, all right, so how do you do that? And that's, I think, a little bit more of where we talk about how the sort of green solutions versus the, the sort of gray engineered solutions are, you know, a way that we can kind of transition our thinking about ways to protect from, from flooding, but in ways that create co-benefits. So, so we have recreation opportunities. We have food growing opportunities. We've got beautification opportunities. So that too, I think that resonated with the community. Those were a lot of the places we worked with. There's a good bit of vacancy and blight. So the, op- the idea of, of sort of reclaiming this 
land and, and at least putting trees back on the land, that was, that was a positive. People liked that. You know, we used that then to kind of evolve the conversation a little bit more to climate change and thinking about, okay, the old ways aren't working anymore. Why aren't they working anymore? Well, we know that, that, that climate is changing. We know that these changes are causing what people uh, sort of signify as a 100-year flood to happen seemingly uh, every 100 days sometimes uh, in some areas of the country. And then certainly in Shelby County, you know, we've had 100-year floods, 500-year floods, you know, almost every year. That's peculiar. That's something that, that I think people will stop and kind of turn their head and go, yeah, you're right. You know, that's not normal. Why is that happening? And that's, I think, helped us to kind of inject a little bit of the conversation about changing climate. Now, there's there's a, a good bit more that we've we've got to do in that conversation and you know, especially when we get into uh that that sort of regional planning effort and thinking about different types of risks as well, we've got to sort of think about what do we know about how the climate is changing? What do we know about how it's changed to today and and you know, maybe how it will change in years to come. Right now we've talked about flooding a lot, but if you look at a lot of the data about Memphis and Shelby County in terms of climate risks that we face by 2050, extreme heat's going to be a much bigger issue for us. Uh, I think right now, or, or at least over the last uh, 30 years, we average something like five days per year with temperatures over 100 degrees. I think by 2050, it's expected to be close to 30 days per year. You know, that's an entire month out of the year that we're 100 degrees plus. And that really has real consequences for a community that you know, has a large proportion of low-income people, has a large proportion of families who live in poverty, and also has uh, a housing stock that's very uh, energy inefficient. I actually think that ACEEE uh, recently released a, por- a report that found that Memphis has the highest energy cost burden of any city in the United States, and it's not because of our rates. It's actually, some our energy rates are some of the lowest in the country because of the energy efficiency housing stock that, that, that people are living in, so, uh, and what extreme heat means for that in years out. So I just want to point out to our audience that I think that you just gave a brief tutorial on how to communicate with communities about climate change, right? What we hear from people, the best practitioners in the country, you start with the issue that climate change is creating currently for the community. You don't start talking about the polar bears or islands, or, right. or if you're in the middle of the country, you don't talk about you know coastal rising. Sure. You talk about the challenge, and then you move people, and that universally people are saying that very quickly the audience will, on their own, move to these other issues and get the whole complexity. But you kind of have to meet them where they are and talk about what's impacting their life you know, today. So, Kiff, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think you that's a great segue because you ended on energy cost burdens, and I would imagine for a low-income community finding out ways and strategies that maybe address heat while also reducing costs, put more money back in people's pockets, are right. going to be really well-received as well. And so I'm just curious how, as you've kind of messaged this out, costs have factored in, because also some of these response strategies are not cheap. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, for one thing, we've been fortunate that we got this large grant. So uh, I think that has been, I think, a really good sort of rallying point in our community for people to pay attention to resilience and and sort of think about what it is and the benefits that it has for the community because so much of it is grant funded from this this large federal grant. I think it gives us a really good head start in getting that work on the ground, showing results 
there's more conversation that has to come, though, with respect to cost, because you're right. None of these uh, solutions that we're uh, proposing are cheap. We are changing landscapes all over the county with these projects. Um, there's one of the, the first project I mentioned in the north part of the county. You know, that's a $30 million project, and it involves 1,200 acres. And we need all 1,200 of those acres and all $30 million of those dollars to be able to prevent the devastating flooding that that community has had actually once a decade. And so the 20, I mentioned the 2011 was the qualifying disaster. The year prior in that community, that same community, they had another flood that had nearly $1 billion just within that community alone. And that naval base was offline for, I think, something like two months or was off, off, had to relocate for, for two months or something like that. So anyway, but back to your question. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, this grant gives us a really great opportunity to be sort of digging through all those different ways that we can be working on resilience in our community and talking about costs and benefits and, and you know, how to weigh those out going forward. The, the, and the other th- good thing that I think we have going for us is, you know, we built this resilient strategy around this regional plan that we worked for over two and a half years to get stakeholders across the region, across all three states, bought in and wanting to see that plan implemented. And so seeing this as one of the first fruits of that labor, I think is a really great step for us uh, in continuing the implementation of that plan and continuing the implementation in other communities beyond Shelby County. Uh, because although we're addressing these issues in Shelby County with this grant, you know, a lot of the flooding that we have in Shelby County is not the result of things that we're doing in our county. The things are the result that are happening in Mississippi or in the county north of us. Uh, east of us. So, um, you know, that we've sort of gone through this process of working uh, as a region. And by the way, you know, all 22 jurisdictions that were involved in that plan have formally adopted it. That's a big um, opportunity for us to continue that conversation. And uh, as we're implementing greenways and trails, be thinking about, you know, well, you've got uh, a flooding issue in this community, you know, that maybe there's an opportunity to design this greenway that your community really wants in a way that that has flood protection opportunities and and then again you know that just sort of creates that that opportunity to to expand the discussion around resilience uh, in in communities all over the region your session at the new partners for smart growth conference was about is resiliency just a buzzword so is it is resiliency just another word for disaster preparedness or is there a difference i think there's definitely a difference a lot of what i think we, you know the session covers is that the way that we're approaching resilience and, and, and really also in the way that we sort of are approaching sustainability from the perspective of this grant, from the perspective of the Sustainable Communities Partnership, is that, you know, you've got to look at these things and think about sort of the co-benefits. And certainly this, this is not to, to take anything from disaster preparedness because there's a lot of, of sort of preparedness issues that, you know, deal with sort of the, the human side and the organizational side, as well as some of the hard engineering stuff that just is necessary. But I, I don't know that the way that we've sort of thought about disaster preparedness as a practice has taken in, uh, at least to the degree that, that we've seen in the last few years around resilience, this concept of focusing on co-benefits, focusing on the multiple benefits, and ensuring that, you know, what we do around a preparedness initiative or project uh, in a community has benefits 
throughout the year, every, you know, 365 days a year, because in all three of these areas that we're going to be doing these projects, you know, we're not going to see historic flooding every day. But hopefully what we will see every day is people going out and taking nature walks or playing at the ball fields with their kids or going and, you know, joining their neighbors at a community garden, helping to fix up a vacant lot down the street that they've always just sort of seen as an eyesore. That's ways that we build sort of community resilience and community development because, you know, it's more than just kind of protecting with a levy. It's also about, you know, building this cohesion uh, across our community uh, in, in a way that, um, that allows us to, you know, focus on things like equity and health and community development and, uh, and also community cohesion that helps us in the face of those disasters to bring people together, be prepared and, and be able to, to be able to react to those shocks in the best way possible. So as you're doing this work, one of the challenges I assume that you face is you're, you're trying to get people to invest money, spend money on things that the benefit is something that won't happen. Or at least part of the benefit is something that won't happen. We're going to prevent the, this flood is not going to happen, so you should spend this money up front. Is that an easy conversation to have with people, or, or do you have any advice for our listeners that when you have to have these kind of conversations, how to present that yeah. to, to the public and to elected officials? Well, I mean, I'll go back to the co-benefits just briefly and say, you know, I think that's, that's sort of the vehicle that, that we have relied on to really push a lot of the benefit for what we're doing. In terms of um, some of the sort of quantifiable metrics, that's something we're, we're, you know we're we're just sort of getting into and getting our heads around. You know, there's a lot of examples that that I think you can be thinking about. I guess so. I guess my advice for any community out there is think about when you have a disaster, whether it's flood or something else. You know, what are the systems that have to sort of get in place to be able to prevent? damage from happening? Or what are the, the sort of cleanup efforts that have to take place? What's the dollar value of those things? So one of the things we're, we've thought about is if we've got a flood and that flood overtops a levee and we've got pumps that we've got to kick on and run those pumps to pump that water to get it you know, out, out of the community, that costs money. We're running those pumps. We're running those pumps 24 hours a day. That's money that's just burning change as we do that. Now, if we don't have to run those pumps, that's savings. Now, again, that's, that's something that is a, um, a benefit of not having to do it. An avoided cost. An unavoided cost, yes. But, you know, we also, I think, can, can go back and, and uh, set some good baselines based on, well, what happened in 2011? You know, that's our qualifying disaster. That's when we know we had $2 billion worth of damages. You know, surely there are costs, you know, related to activities that we had to do to react to the, to the flood or prepare to the flood for the flood that maybe we don't have to do now as a result of this. So in thinking about, you know, how we can uh, design metrics that have that in mind and, and allow us to be able to, um, to try to better quantify, you know, that unavoidable cost in a way that the community and, and political leaders and, and elected officials, you know, sort of see value in. But that's certainly not to underestimate the value that, that I think all of those groups see in the co-benefits. Just from a, a broader perspective, I think cities and, and counties and regions all over the country, they want to invest in quality of life. They want to make their place more competitive uh, by creating places where people want to be, places where people want to have experiences. And if we can tie that into the benefit of protecting from disasters, I think that's something also that registers with the community as well as elected leaders. 
So one of the things you touched on was all the ways you want to use the National Disaster Resilience Competition to both to seed future right. work, to seed community communications. Are there any key deliverables that are part of your proposal that you see as really that forward-looking piece that's going to end up in the community and carry on beyond the grant that's going to help you do this work, help you convince other people to continue this work? That was really the purpose of adding in the resilience plan on top of the three projects. So I mentioned earlier that we designed the three projects to be sort of three different looks at how we make room for the river using those three different strategies. And all three are in, in three different contexts that have application and replicability to other parts of the county uh, and the region which was something that, that was impressed upon us quite a bit from the federal government in our application to try to, to create as much replicability as, as possible. So another thing that happened, though, when we were putting together the grant application is we would be doing community engagement and we'd be in a, a neighborhood that might be adjacent to an area that's one of the affected areas, one of the areas where there's unmet recovery need, uh, if I can pull out the HUD jargon. And folks at the meeting would say, well, you know, that's great for that community that they're eligible for this grant, that you're working in that area. But what about my community? You know, we've been flooded too. Well, sorry, you weren't flooded in 2011 and there's unmet recovery need. You know, that's not a great thing to say to someone who maybe the year prior, their house flooded too. So what we saw was, you know, we've, we've got flood issues all over our county in areas that aren't directly affected by this grant. Now, certainly the benefits of those sort of recreational spaces, anyone can enjoy. But one of the big reasons why we wanted to do the plan was so we could take these concepts from those three different areas and look at other areas of the county and the region that are experiencing not only flooding but other climate risks and think about, you know, what are strategies, what are ways that we can take the three project types that we're doing on the ground and apply them to, you know, maybe a park renovation in a nearby community or, you know, what are sort of brand new projects that we can do or, or even scale down. I mentioned a moment ago, the north part of the county is 1,200 acres. Actually, we found that that strategy, there's another part of the north part of the county that's a little bit more suburban they have a very similar issue, but it's much smaller scale. And we had uh, some designers actually just to see if it would work, take that 1,200-acre model and kind of shrink it down to, I think, just maybe four acres to place in the middle of this suburban community to see if that strategy worked there. And what the designers and engineers found was that it did. That's exactly the type of strategy we need to put there. And so that's, I think, what the plan gives us is that opportunity to test those solutions in different areas. So we come out of the grant. We've got these three big projects. You know, we've got, they're, they're obviously very visible and, you know, there's a lot of attention around them, but we've also got this plan that, that has shovel-ready projects in other communities. So, you know, whether we use FEMA funds or whether there's other HUD funds or whether it's even local stormwater dollars, you know, we can be thinking about how we use other funding sources to address issues in other parts of, of the county and region in a way that sort of follows our work long term. So is there, is there a website, is there a place where people can go and look at your plan? So the kind of baseline plan, the Mid-South Green Print is the name of that, midsouthgreenprint.org. The resilience work, resilientshelby.com. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for being with us today, and thanks for the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you and, and hear from you. 
And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.